Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics, which featured Etta James and Lionel Richie, as well as the best of the R&B scene. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. This week, we're talking about Chapter 14, which is set in the Memorial Coliseum of Los Angeles, 1984, which means one thing, the 1984 Summer Olympics, which, for my dollar, was the all-time peak of jingoism in America, in my experience. Ed, does that match yours? You know, I think that's that's accurate, although I do see this. This is probably the one time where I'm talking about something I knew something about because I did work for the news media, which is not a guarantee you're going to know something about it. But I was at the in the sixth year of a six-year sports writing career, and anybody who starts, unless they own the paper, you know, they're they're, you know, incredibly talented you you when you start especially like at the college paper you cover olympic type sports like cross country and stuff like that and um because you're the new guy and usually that consists of just you know who won and all that stuff it's really and it's usually there's very you know those kind of sports don't have a ton of drama like football or baseball or whatever but six years and 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 I knew some Olympians. I'd written stories about a couple. Um, the, the paper I worked for in Columbus, Georgia, actually, um, there were a couple local ones that were supposed to be in and didn't get in. So, so we had some skin in the game. And plus, I'm working in a newspaper every day, and the, you know we're getting the score. So we're we're putting together the information that people are going to see it. So, so I'm seeing it from that angle. Plus this 1980 thing, which we'll get to. Sorry for the long answer. Uh, that's that's fair enough. Uh, Matos, I think uh, he had to talk about the Olympics. It was a huge yes. cultural milestone that year. And we've had yes. a lot of Olympics since then. And they haven't recaptured the amount of attention that could be focused on the Olympics in 1980 and 1981. Those are just um, – yes. You know, we still basically had three three network news channels that everybody watched. Cable news is just beginning. There's no internet yet. Radio is still the Wild West. There's hundreds of radio stations independently owned all over the country. And there's three news weeklies, Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report. So you could get on the cover of those three magazines, get wall-to-wall coverage on the three uh, nightly news broadcast you know one of the channels had the olympics i assume it was nbc matos probably says but it, this was it just was a ABC. massive deal abc correct it was abc yes, this yes. time but there's i've got some some juice on that too believe it or not keep all going. right all right and so <laughs> this one peter uberoth made himself a international star by organizing this the los angeles olympics and and I think they ended up not making money because of the TV rights. Matos gets into the, the depths of that. I, I'm not that focused on it because it, it, I'm focused on the musical piece. But we have to talk about this because it was just such a part of the culture. And it was also, in my opinion, in my experience, when America turned – like in 1980, the plucky American hockey team beat the overwhelmingly favored Soviet or Russian Olympic hockey team. And we were the plucky underdogs. In 84, the Soviets boycotted the thing because we had boycotted the 80 Summer Olympics held in Moscow. And we just ruled. 
the American team won yep. basically all the medals, and the crowd was so ugly and hateful. It was just <laughs> a really shocking expression of just nationalism and jingoism, and and kind of leads the beginning of us going down the road that would you know culminate in the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and our current foreign policy disasters. So yeah, this is a, a pivotal moment. And also he gets into some things like Daryl Gates, the police chief of the the commissioner of the LAPD, jailed thousands of people before and during the games in Operation Hammer. And you know, this is somebody who comes up over and over again in the Let It Roll history, both because they were viciously harassing the punk scene, black flag, and especially, and also because they were insanely harassing the black community, including, you know, the future members of NWA, et cetera, et cetera. All the stars of West Coast rap are going to have many bitter experiences with the LAPD. And ironically, they were so focused on oppressing the people in the neighborhoods near the Olympic event centers that they let the rest of the city go loose and the Crips and the Bloods blew up that year because they had such a wide open field. So, you know, just some amazing, amazing craziness. But what what you got to add on the ABC front? Well, the, um, the so this, I, it was weird to be reminded that ABC was the network because after that year for the next several Olymp- Olympics, and I don't know who's doing it right now, but for so many more, you know, years, decades, NBC with Dick Ebersol at the helm of sports was the mammoth Olympic, you know, host and, um, or TV host or whatever, you know, the TV coverage and, um, Dick Ebersol to connect it to, to, to this effort. Um, he's the guy that came up with Friday night videos for NBC. And he also was a very short time, um, producer believe it or not for, for Saturday night live after long. I don't, I don't know. I can't for the remember whole, how long the whole, the whole Eddie Murphy era, Lorne Michaels Was left it? in '79. Okay. Yeah, okay. Lorne, well, we except go. for the first okay. year, Lorne Michaels left in '79. Yes. Gene okay. Dominion, who had worked for Woody Allen, came in for one year. Eddie Eddie Murphy had a small role on that season. So did Gilbert Gottfried and yep. Joe Piscopo. And then okay. Ebersol took over, and he just rode Eddie Murphy star power for the next three four years. And then Lorne Michaels came back in '86. So at this point in time, Ebersol okay. is still the host of um, Yes. Or not the host, okay. the producer of SNL. The producer. Well, his wife was Susan St. James at the time, and she had been on a pretty uh, successful detective show called Macmillan and Wife with Rock Hudson in the 70s. Um, and here's here's a tidbit that just popped in my head today. Um, she was on, I think, Letterman that year in 84 and talked about her and her husband, Mr. Eberslaw, going to a Springsteen concert. And finding it so uh, enjoyable, shall we say, they had to—they couldn't even go all the way home afterwards. They had to stop at a cheap motel. They were so uh, entranced by Mr. Springsteen. Wow, they had to—they had to come <laughs> consummate their love of the box. Yes, right. Yeah, and then that's yep, yep. You hard to relate that. to. Hard to relate to personally, but I'm glad that they've found something. Me that too, exciting. brother. <laughs> Me too, baby. <laughs> But uh, that's wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's some crazy stuff. But Matos does an elegant job of telling the story of the, of the L.A. Olympics and then weaving it back into the music business by zeroing yeah. in on Etta James, who sang uh, had a big featured singing spot at the Olympics. And, and it was one of those things where the people working on the committee were like, we need somebody who sings just like Etta James for this plot. Meanwhile, Etta James is frantically working to get in contact with somebody at the Olympics because she's like, I just want a chance to sing. And of course, we've done an episode on Etta James, the great, one of the great uh, female rock and roll singers from the 50s, one of the queens of soul in the 60s, had yeah. kind of fallen on hard times and drug addiction through the 70s and into the 80s. But by the early 80s, she was she had her act back together and, and and was performing and she was ready for this and she blew it out, blew the doors off of it. That's where I first heard about Etta James. And I immediately was like, who is this amazing woman? Tell me more, you know? And at the time it yeah. was really hard to track down old time rock and roll or soul songs. And and I had to get in the way in the dusty used record bins to find any Etta James wow. at all. I found a couple singles on chess was the only thing I could track down from her soul era. But, you know, from there, Matos gets into a whole bit about 
uh, older singers and music rights. He talks about how uh, Little Richard um, had had sold his his licensing, you know, his music publishing rights in 1959 for $11,000 and then, uh, you know, tried to sue. And there was a countersue with our, our by Art Rupi of Rup of Specialty Records, who sued Little Richard for three million for slander. After Little Richard went on a radio show saying that that claiming that Rupi had said all a black person needed is twelve thousand a year, which I don't know if he said it or didn't, but either way, Rup had to settle a suit privately and Rich with Richard in eighty six. But that same year, Big Mama Thornton dies, you know, the original singer of, of the original version of Hound Dog, and uh, could barely afford a funeral. So, you know, Etta James used her return to celebrity to kind of shine a light on some of this, uh, you know, just habitual rip offery of, of black artists by the music business. But let's go ahead and hear um an R&B hit from that this year. And, and Matos uses this chapter to cover basically R&B that's not full-on pop crossover. Cro- well, it is full-on pop crossover, but he, he hits the R&B stuff he hasn't already covered by talking about Michael and Prince so much. So here's the Pointer Sisters and their hit Jump for My Love. Jump for My Love by the Pointer Sisters. I always found it confusing why there were so many mega hits called Jump in 1984, but here you go. They dropped in 83, actually, but was still a big hit all through 84 and would go on to have hits off that same album in 85, thanks to um, one of the Eddie Murphy movies, um, uh, whichever one, the Beverly Hills, Hills Cop. Cop. Was it yeah, Beverly? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was the Neutron Dance. And, and so yeah, this is something... Go. And, and next chapter, we'll be talking about MTV more. But this phenomenon of albums having such long commercial lives really had to do with MTV. It, it, it went from a model, you know, in the 60s, artists would put out three, four albums a year. In the 70s, somebody like Kiss would put out, I can think of at least two years where they put out three albums. But by the yeah. 80s, there were slow walking album releases. And we'll talk about how Madonna had to hold back her second album because the videos off her first album were still uh, spinning off hits. So, you know, the the business is going through a big change and Thriller's kind of the first record on that model where it had a three-year life because of the videos that kept coming out and Purple Rain follows that that model. And you're going to see it all the way through the eighties with guns and roses, appetite for destruction in the late eighties. And, and uh, Nirvana's first album as late as 1991 kind of followed that pattern as well. But now we're going to switch to the R and B scene and, and Matos again, our craftsmanly well weaves this together because he'd already talked about how AOR album oriented rock had become a very conservative radio format. And he discusses in this chapter, how that had happened on R and B radio, thanks to the quiet storm format, which I discussed several times in this show. It started in DC in the late seventies. It was kind of a mellow R and B format based off Smokey Robinson's 1975 album and hit song of that same title. And because hip hop is the coming thing in black music, Matos points out that there was a very similar generational split where the R&B radio business didn't want anything to do with hip hop. A lot of older black music fans who are R&B, you know, ride or die fans did not want anything to do with hip hop. So these R&B stations would not play the stuff that the young black kids were into, which, you know, leads R&B radio to morph into something similar to AOR in that they're playing a lot of catalog content so anything to add to the quiet storm era when when did you become aware of the quiet storm were you were you a fan in the time when i read when i read this chapter i mean i was hearing it come and make <laughs> i was hearing it some versions of it and making georgia which i will you know probably the whole this whole year 
um, because I had a, a, a future fiance who lived there and Macon had gone even, you know, believe you know, the home of the Allman brothers had become even more plastique and radio than Columbus, Georgia. I mean, they had a station that was, that had, that had a canned announcer even like 90. And, and that was, that blew my mind, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was, even though we had uh flash dance and everything like that, but, um, even and and so it was even more kind of getting weird that way and and vacant. But so and I think that was part of Quiet Storm as well. But but I did I will say this I had a good friend who I think I mentioned this before that he he was a huge Diana Ross fan and he hated um, that uh, the Mick Jagger Michael Jackson um, State of Shock song when it came <laughs> on on you know it came on on the radio he listened to and I'm over there digging it i mean it was what it was as far as i was concerned it was as good as anything michael had done not that i know i loved beat it too though but you know i loved mick at the time and my friend was just you know rolling his eyes and screaming because it was so terrible so there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was i was i had definitely turned on um on on mick at that point i i, I he lost me with the 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 uh Let's spend the night together. Rock concert film where he's in the pastel and riding on the giant yeah. inflatable yep. pillow, and, yep. and he just looked so old. Um, but, but but back to our topic. Motown is cleaning up in this in this period. That they're not only all over the Quiet Soul radios, but they're the number three adult contemporary label for that year. With not only based on nine records, they had nine records that were such big hits on adult contemporary that they became the number three label. And then, I mean, spanking labels that had like 27 cult contemporary hits, but that's because they had their ace in the hole, Lionel Richie, who had already morphed from the Commodores, you know, one member, one of six Commodores. Admittedly, he's the guy who sang the hit ballads, but. He's fully on, he's fully solo here, and we'll talk about him a little bit more. But first, we want to talk about Marvin Gaye because uh, Mato spent some time on him. And, and Marvin Gaye is one of these figures. Um, he was killed in April. I want to say '83, but maybe it was early '84. I could it be wrong about It was '84. It was. Yeah. It okay. Was so he's killed. I know where I was. Yeah, he was. He was killed early this year. I remember that vividly as well when it dropped. Um, and I actually hadn't heard of Marvin Gaye before, which will tell you what a corn dog I was. And and I was really like, wow, this guy was a big deal, um, you know. And, and went back and discovered, well, yeah, this guy was a big deal. <laughs> and we've covered him many times on on Let It Roll. Brooks Long and I did a, a show on the autobiography or the biography of him by David Ritz, but. You know, basically, Matos gives a encapsulation of, of Marvin Gaye's last couple years, including the massive hit album. Uh, sec, uh, uh, it had sexual healing on it as a hit. I think I can't remember. Midnight Love was was the name of the album. And that was his first album on CBS. He left Motown after a 20 year relationship, including being married to Barry Gordy's sister, Anna, for many years. Um But he, he has his comeback. He puts out massively successful album on CBS. Then he goes on tour, and it's not quite a disaster, but it's not great. He's way out of his head. The stress of performing really freaked him out. And after the tour, he just spiraled down and um, was wallowing in drug abuse and and unhealthy sexuality while living with his parents. And that ultimately culminated into an ugly brawl with his father who then shot him and killed him and you know massive massive tragedy and and matos also talks about um marvin's incredible performance of the star spangled banner i believe at the nba all-star game a little bit earlier which was the model that edda james and so many other uh, singers used for their singing of anthems at sporting events so let's go ahead and hear Marvin Gaye singing the Star Spangled Banner, I believe in late 1983 at the NBA All-Star Game. Last, 
And that was Marvin Gaye singing the Star Spangled Banner with the NBA All-Star Game, one of his last public appearances, and an incredible performance of that song, which is a hard song to pull off at all, much less to make a statement out of. Um, but he very much did that. And we're going to see that become kind of a uh, a landmark song for R&B and pop performers going forward. I'm thinking of Whitney Houston in particular is going to have some of her greatest moments of her career singing the national anthem and things like that at big public events. But um, now we get into the man himself, Lionel Richie. <laughs> and I hated Lionel Richie so much in this era, this alliance. When he produced um, the Kenny Rogers album and then started having country hits, like I hated Three Times a Lady and Easy so much. And then to have it bleeding over into country music was just torture. I've made peace with Lionel now, but where's your relationship with Lionel Richie? Have you forgiven him or did you love him the whole time? You know, God, that is what a loaded question. Um, I think they played, I believe that the NBA, I'm going to jump back for two seconds. I believe they played that uh, at the end of the when I can't remember who won the NBA that year in 84, but they played Lionel at the end after the after the final whoever won it that year it might have been the Lakers might have it's uh, the good guess is Lakers or Celtics in those days but they played I don't it think okay it was now the Celtics yet but anyway on to Lionel you know what we we covered Tuskegee um we, yeah, you're right it we was were, the Lakers and the Celtics that year it was and that was a good okay. series yeah yeah yes um and they played it at the end and I happened to see that game and or you know happened to be at home and watched it, and it was pretty profound at that. So I'm pretty, I'm almost certain that that CBS played that him performing, which was, you know, just so poignant, just sad. It's so tragic. Anyway, back to Lionel, which is the opposite of that. I, you know, it's weird because nobody, I don't. It was like he wasn't even on our radar, even though he was so ubiquitous. You know, my, I mean, my, I had two, I had an African American a contemporary who I worked with. I had a friend, the one that loved Diana Ross um, at the same time, who was in med school in Georgia and um, an African-American guy. I don't, I know we never talked about Lionel Richie. They, they weren't, he wasn't even on their radar. I mean, the, the friend from work went and saw Sheila. He was the one who snuck, who got his way, uh, worked his way into a um, boy George um, culture club uh, press conference. I mean, but it, it was, What's really strange is he wasn't <clears throat> because he didn't do Brick House, <laughs> <laughs> which was badass. Yes, they were and Machine Gun. The Commodores yes. were a badass funk band when they tried. No when it, kidding. When they, no when they kidding. weren't doing Lionel Richie. Yeah, I was in yeah. a punk band in the in the eight, late '80s, early '90s, and we wrote half our songs ripping off licks from Commodore Records. If it wasn't the Commodores, yeah. you know, it was it was uh, Funkadelic or Isaac Hayes. I mean, they were a badass band, and Lionel yeah. was uh, just there to do the ballads, and the ballads bloomed like a cancer <laughs> yeah and it's just like chicago i hate to say this um chicago and peter satay yes it's just exactly and to tell you the truth my buddy that my my work colleague would torture me by singing along to chicago Ooh. those chicago ballads because Ooh. i was react you know i'm old school i'm for i'm transit i'm a transit authority chicago fan and i mean I'm, yeah. I'm that, that was just the worst, most offensive shit. Excuse my French, <laughs> you know, excrement that I'd ever heard. And then they, they even had some videos to go with this crap. I mean, it was oh, it massive was a, videos. And did a, you notice, did you notice the name David Foster popping up working with Lionel Richie in this period? He's the same producer that made all those Satara yes. and Chicago albums. And I've actually... Part of my making peace with Lionel Richie is through the course of this Let It Roll project, I've sort of traced the genealogy because, you know, there's what we call pop in the 90s is different from what was called pop in the 50s or 60s, 70s. And this strain of pop to me starts with Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand, their alliance, and Lionel Richie's alliance with Kenny Rogers and David Foster's relationship with Peter Cetera. And they came up with a new kind of pop that was a post-rock era pop that yeah. 
that had nothing to do with jazz or Frank Sinatra or that whole tradition of pop, but it still basically had defanged rock and R&B. Yeah. Um, and, and perfected this pop formula, which goes on to become, I think it leads on into Adele and the dominant strains of what we call pop in the 21st century, trace their ancestry to these guys rather than, say, the Beatles um, or, or something like that. And the Beatles are obviously a massive influence on everybody, but but this, yeah. this Lionel Richie alliance with Kenny Rogers was a big, big deal. And I didn't realize that Lionel himself was having country hits. Um, in this I, me neither me neither I mean, it is so weird this is just so surreal and then phil phil collins phil collins is at the same time the same kind of crap excuse my friends <laughs> but some people love phil collins phil collins stuff, i know millennials have yeah. have have shown me that that stuff was important and powerful because so many yeah. people love that stuff yeah. I, I was wrong i missed the boat on that stuff but boy did i hate it at the time <laughs> me too. my my girlfriend loved him though I bought oh, wow. That, Did she have the albums? Single. Yes. And I bought her that single, and we actually went and saw Genesis when, when I was married to her um, in 87, uh, I think. Yeah. First, another, first, uh, first stadium show pioneer. I ever went to. Another pioneer yes. of that pop, modern pop. I yes, it was. It really was. And I mean, as much as I, I at those in those days, I would see guys playing and drumming in bands that played that stuff. And my my um, filter told me that they must be in some sort of personal hell, that they had to be <laughs> they were being punished for something or they Maybe had just they gotten out it. of jail. Maybe yeah, yeah I couldn't it. fathom it. I couldn't fathom that somebody would play in a band like that. And I know that was my chauvinism, my raucous approach. Yeah, but yeah, anyway. it would. And and we should we should recap because Matos does a whole history of Lionel Richie and the Commodores. And it talks about how he kind of snuck into the band as a saxophone player and then became uh, their uh, ballad, their balladeer. And it mentions Benny Ashburn, who was their manager. And he was more than the Brian Epstein of that band because he was able to mediate all those talents. And like you had multiple songwriters in a band and they would all get a song and then they would fight over who got like the, the, the extra song. Like a couple guys would get two songs on there. And that's one of those bands that worked like a well-oiled machine until their manager suddenly died too young of a heart attack and they fell apart. And by that time, you know, Lionel had already left and gone solo because he had um, you know, three times a lady, which they thought no chance was this going to be a hit single. It came out in the seventies. It's in waltz time. I mean, nobody was dropping yeah. waltz time hits in 1978. Nobody. That's the same year uh, as Donna Summers inventing electronic dance music. You know, and, and Giorgio mm-hmm. Moroder, and and the Commodores pulled it off. Three times a lady becomes this massive double platinum hit single that like my aunt veed and uncle Vern loved i mean you know old people yeah. everywhere love this stuff and it broke on yeah. con- and it was people on country radio were open to it and then kenny rogers reached out to lionel richie and was like dude let's let's team up and there you go you know he richie produces share your love the kenny rogers album in 1981 and the evil alliance is locked in <laughs> <laughs> it was the active powers of joint forces exactly and right around that same time like kenny was doing a duet with dolly parton on a on a barry gibb song islands in the stream and so you've got lionel and barry gibb as these Svengali's behind the scenes writing and producing this stuff that then becomes really a powerful force on country radio it wasn't entirely dominant but my god it was a powerful thing and then lionel just straight up drops stuck on you and and plays nashville and Packed house, rave reviews. I mean, everybody loved Lionel Richie. I mean, or the mainstream loved Lionel yeah. Richie in the eighties. Yeah, punks, not yeah. those punks like me, hated him. But um, and I, I don't know what hip hop, you know, young hip hop fans thought of him at that time. But dude was massive, massive. But let's take a break from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk more about the music and musical crimes of Lionel Richie. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so, yeah, we're talking Lionel Richie. So far, we're talking about his string of massive pop ballad hits while a member of the Commodores. But then, like I said, Benny Ashburn, their manager, died in 1982, August 1982, and the group just folds. They fell apart. He was the center of the group. Lionel goes solo. His first album, Lionel Richie, sells $4 million. Then he follows it up with Can't Slow Down, totally aimed at, quote-unquote, crossing over. But... Um, had lots of actually up the tempo and it never goes into the hard funk. I actually listened to, to both of his first two albums all the way through for this, mm-hmm. but um, never goes into the hard funk that the Commodores did. But he does add a lot of dance rhythms, and I actually found myself enjoying quite a bit of the album. And, and, and we'll play it later, but I was actually really found myself kind of overcome with memories and emotions when All Night Long came on. Like I, I, I had not been expecting to be overwhelmed by the emotional power of Lionel Richie's All Night Long, but there we are. I was. I, you know, I heard, and I was not going to bring this up, but I, about, I had I moved one time and bought a, a boom box when we still put CDs in boom boxes and it had a radio on it and I was testing it. And because I'm easy came on, and it was a night. It's a. I still have this boombox. It's a really interesting. It has all these airy speakers in it and everything. And that song sounded so good on that thing. I mean, and and I didn't. And I mean, it almost sounded like it was vinyl. It sounded just. It had so much warmth. And they. I mean, the guys knew how to do. You know, they knew how to keep a beat. And that they did, and they knew how to produce for jam boxes because that was a yes, very popular vehicle. Yes. For for um, and a jam box for those who don't know is a little box about the size of an attaché case, a little bit bigger, with big big ass speakers and a and a cassette player, radio, and then later editions had CD versions. You might remember from the movie yeah. um, "Do the Right Thing," where the main character, one of the main yeah. characters, carries the the giant boombox around. Uh, Nowadays you do it with a Bose speaker. Nobody, I don't, I haven't seen anybody carrying a, a noisemaker around like that. But back yeah. in the day, you know, a lot of people liked the boomboxes, and so producers, just like in the '60s, they were produced for AM radio and cars. In the '80s, they're producing for Sony Walkman, which is a whole different experience. Headphones, tiny little cassette yeah. player, or for a boombox. Again, also for TVs because it, so many of the songs will be heard on MTV, and TVs notorious for crappy sound reproduction yeah. so they had to you know had to jigger this production and lionel richie and um david foster and the other people he worked with 
absolute masters of customizing their sounds yeah. to fit to, to hit that kind of stuff. And and you know, you just can't deny that kind of popular success. He was obviously striking a nerve with many, many, yeah. many people. And you know, and people just love the guy. And it's interesting. Matos goes into his background. He was an upper middle class black kid. He was he was born and raised in the in Booker T. Washington's um, Tuskegee Institute, which you know, legendary African American leader of the 19th century, politically controversial to this day. Like W. E. B. Du Bois and others, you know, op- opposed his style. I mean, in some ways, uh, Booker T. was kind of the separatist or self-reliance advocate in the african-american community whereas w.e.b du bois was was the you know let's make a cultural impact in the broader culture advocate kind some people have compared them to to malcolm x and martin luther king respectively but booker t was the opposite of 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 confrontational like he 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 and he was in a very different era than Malcolm X. Booker T was in the era of reconstructions coming to an end, um, the vile Jim Crow racist, terrorist racist political system is being imposed. By the 1890s, you know, lynchings are through the roof. There are no longer competitive elections in the American South, which we did have from, from the end of the Civil War all the way up until the mid-1880s, early 1890s. And then the wall comes down. The the uh, old Dixiecrat, the Democratic Party at that time, took power in the South and just took over. And so it wasn't a, a good era to be confrontational if you're an African-American leader. And so Booker T. Washington was very much uh, kind of going to ground, keeping his head down, keeping quiet and just focusing on trades and agricultural and investment and education and trying to create a self-reliant black uh, African-American community that could stand on their own as much as possible and survive the wild political swings going on in the wider culture of which were frequently aimed straight at African-Americans in the worst possible way. So anyway, I thought it was fascinating that Lionel Lynch well, was it is. to that. Well, and, and I, it's near Columbus, Georgia, where I live, and I covered I for some reason I covered the Tuskegee the Tuskegee University still is majority black university. I am pretty sure in those days in '84 um, that Tuskegee was still a majority black town, and I went there to write some feature preview stories about the Tuskegee um, football their the university's football team and some of the players because they were playing their annual game against Morehouse. Um, that fall of 84. So I actually went there and, um, I, I only, I just remember being in the, I, I don't remember a ton, but I remember at one point during Lionel's reign during that time, he mentioned that he, I'm from a small town in Alabama called Tuskegee. And, um, I also covered a Tuskegee football game against, um, one of the other Alabama schools at the other Alabama school and the announcer, I am pretty sure mispronounced Tuskegee on purpose as an asshole, white, white asshole move. Um, <laughs> There's no shortage that, of those. Yes. No, no. And it was still, I mean, it, you know, even though that same asshole has black kids on his team, you know, and, and, and et cetera, we don't have to go down that road, but I mean, yeah. it was very much, I have a rural, I covered a lot of rural, um, high school football with, uh, African-American colleagues in Alabama and Georgia during that time frame, And that's where I heard most of the worst stories from my colleagues and for, oh, and from just other people who covered it, just some of that crap going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I mean, it's always, been an immensely racist country but this is a pretty racist period because the civil rights movement had had quote unquote won and changed things it ended segregation huge victory improved the quality of life for so many people but then kind of america declared victory and put the dukes of hazard on tv (laughs) oh god god that is so true god and uh and so the 80s by the 80s you know you've got this reagan counter-revolution and everything you know, is 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 so right wing and jingoistic. And Lionel Richie is just fitting right in. Like this is yeah. the black guy that white people wanted to see at that time. And I don't know what his personal politics are. And I'm sure and 
hats off to him if he was able to game the system and 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 shake down a bunch of racist white idiots for for, for money you know like uh, you know uh, much respect but you know it's just fascinating the, these these sort of racial cross currents but that to me as a kid at that time this alliance of lionel richie Kenny Rogers, Barry Gibb, and I knew Barry Gibb was involved behind the scenes. I knew who was writing Orleans in the stream. And I love Dolly Porton, Parton, <laughs> but I didn't I didn't dig what she was doing after she went disco. I've I've made peace yeah. with that now, but at the time as a kid who was raised on Code of Many Colors and, and hardcore, you know, I watched Porter Wagner's TV show every Saturday of my life. And then, you know, when Lionel and Kenny and Barry and Dolly are in, and you know are in this pop country disco alliance, yeah. you know, like he'd already ruined the Commodores, and now he's yep. he's coming over and 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 doing um, country. But let's hear a little bit of Lionel. This is Lionel Richie stuck on you, and this sucker actually hit big on country radio in 1984. Stuck on you. Got this feeling down deep in my soul that I just can't Guess I'm on my way Needing a friend And the way I feel now I guess I'll be with you till the end Guess I'm on my way Mighty glad you stayed And that was Stuck on You by Lionel Richie, which made its mark on country radio in 1984. And if you listen to that track, those production techniques, the way they mic the acoustic guitars, even these neo-traditionalists that we talked about in the country episode, like George Strait and Randy Travis, et cetera, they're going to still be drawing on on some of the techniques at Lionel Richie. It wasn't just these pop country cats that that were listening. All of Nashville was paying close attention to Lionel Richie's work, which is actually pretty cool, I think. I mean, I, I love the idea of a black guy coming in and completely rewiring Nashville, you know? Like, here's how you do yeah. it, fellas. Oh, cool. Thanks, Lionel. <laughs> We're going to run with That's this. That's amazing. Like, yeah, yeah, it really is It really is a feat. And, and you got to take your hat off, even if... Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed Stuck on You going back to listening to it. I tried to listen to Three Times a Lady. I still can't do that. and I can't do Easy <laughs> Like a Sunday Morning. But um, but this whole album, especially his second album, Can't Slow Down, that pushed a lot of buttons for me. I mean, a lot of high school dances, a lot of, I guess, subliminal memories of parties and, and things. Yeah. Right? I certainly wasn't putting Lionel Richie on, but it was the soundtrack to our lives, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't not hear it. It's, I mean, no. all night long, all night long is one that just, I mean, I immediately, when you said that, I immediately thought, God, how many times have I heard that song and never did I tune it up my, for my, to hear, I was just, you know, it was just part of the wallpaper. Non-consensual listening. But you know, when I went back and actually listened to it, it's fascinating. It's got all these Caribbean rhythms and, and interesting production techniques. It, it's, you know, he moved from being in a hard funk band to being this, middle of the road pop savant but he still was coming at it from an r&b direction he still had to keep his r&b cred and he needed he he was modeling this album off thriller and so he needed some up-tempo dance stuff and he, he obviously couldn't do the kind of hardcore dance stuff that michael jackson could do that just you know he'd have to bring back three quarters of the commodores to, to, to do that but he was able to find a light dance style that complemented his ballad style and honestly, if anything, I think he was too successful and got too big that year. I mean, I, I know I had Lionel Richie burnout after 1984, but like I said, I wasn't a fan at the time. But I think a lot of people who did dig his stuff were a little tired of him after, you know, like the next album with Dancing on the Ceiling, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't, yeah. um, you know, just that kind of success, you're going to burn people out, but... You know, which is kind of like Michael too, you know. And in some yeah. ways, how can you how can you follow um, Thriller, and how can you follow his Lionel's dominance, which he was even longer because he did Endless Love in eighty. Yep. That was even eighty one, and yep. you know he's already emerging then. 
Yeah, I mean, by the late seventies, early eighties, he's he's got these mammoth mammoth pop hits that are right there with Air Supply, and all the other kind of light, Barry Manilow, all the other light pop from yeah. that era, which. You know, a lot of people love, but a lot of kids like me were just like frothing at the mouth to get that crap yeah. out of our ears. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> me too. If you're, me too. If you're full of anger and testosterone like I was, <laughs> this was not <laughs> not your no jam. Kidding. You know, um, but it's fascinating. Like Matos points out that that in in the August. 25th 1984 issue of billboard that black artists accounted for six of the top 10 albums that was the first time that had ever been done on the billboard pop chart she had prince's purple rain just living at the top of the pop charts we've talked about that in previous chapters she had tina turner we're going to be talking about her next week and 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 obviously she just passed away in 2023 and and that was a hard one and it was so satisfying to see her crowned the queen of rock and roll which i never heard in her lifetime i swear i never heard but she has a claim to that title you know because she was mrs ike turner because of the great rock and roll hits she did she never really was a soul singer i mean well i take that back river deep mountain high is one of the great soul hits of all time flopped in america massive hit in england but mostly with ike she was a rock and roller they didn't fit in with funk they didn't fit in with soul ike was coming from 1950 always you know from rocket 88 he really was he he never yeah no i get it i get it yeah he he, i mean you know he one of the inventors of rock and roll yes that was his home lane. And Tina was the avatar who, who from 19, what, 58, 59, whenever she partnered with them from then on through the seventies, they were one of the great rock acts. And then her comeback in the eighties, just legendary. And we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. So the, it was, Looking I don't know. I found my, yeah. I found myself very touched by her passing, especially yes. because, uh, you know, there's, there's other contenders for Queen of Rock and Roll. Etta James, who we talked about earlier, but she spent half her career doing soul. You had Laverne Baker and Ruth Brown, who were queens of rock and roll when rock and roll meant Wynoni Harris and Roy Brown. But once rock and roll meant Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, et cetera, that 55, 54, 55 generation – Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker kind of got left behind. And then they never produced a rockabilly queen. You had Wanda Jackson who almost took the title. Like if she'd had just a few more hits, she did great work. But, you know, but for my dollar, Tina Turner, queen of rock and roll, closed. Case closed. Amen, brother. And and then anyway, you also had the Jackson's Victory album, which Matos points out is already fallen from number four to number seven. Bad sign. (laughs) And the Pointer Sisters breakout album, which we which we which we talked about. So, you know, black artists. Did you go ahead? Did you know the Pointer Sisters were were actually around in 74? Yeah, they were a a swing band revival act. They were. Yeah. yeah, they sang. They sang on um, the last Alice Cooper group album, the last yeah. album that you know the group did, "Muscle Love," which I, I actually am one of the people who loves that album. Um, <laughs> I was in eighth, I was in eighth grade and in the end of eighth grade and learning to play the drums. And I I really loved that album. My um, cool older brother on, had already turned on them by then, so I never I, paid well, I, I'm not. Well, I, I won't. I won't get in a violent fist fight with him about it. But anyway, <laughs> but I'll hide behind the drums as usual. But um, but they were on that. They were on Chicago's album, um, and in the spring of '74, and they were on the Midnight Special. I mean, they were they were my, part of the rock and roll landscape. And they were, and my mom loved them because she was a swing head. Like you know, Ella Fitzgerald was the music of her teenage years. You okay. know, Ella Fitzgerald with Chick Webb, and so she would play a tisk of the tasket around the house. And when the Pointer Sisters came out, somehow my mother got a hold of that record, and wow. I think we had it on eight track in the car. And she would go on and on. This was the kind of music they had when I was a kid. Like she really yeah. loved it. So yeah, no, I knew all cool. about the Pointer Sisters, and then and then they they rebranded themselves as a pop r&b act yeah perfectly you know they were very yes technologically sophisticated a lot of synthesizers drum machines very modern 80s sound and one of the acts that could pull it off it wasn't you know a lot of times they would try to force that kind of production on acts that it didn't go with the pointer sisters and the and the you know that album definitely it's good all the way through i checked it out uh listened to that cool. all the way through but but Matos also talks about the strategy of, of this stuff and a lot of these artists including michael jackson 
before they attacked the pop charts, they would go after adult, adult contemporary. So they would get R and B, um, you know, because because they had the Motown backing and and the and the credibility. Michael was obviously on Epic by this point, but Lionel was still with Motown. I could be wrong about that, but I, I think he was still on Mo- the Commodores were on Motown. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Lionel was on Motown. We talked about that earlier. Forgive my senility, but. They also would go after adult contemporary radio and then and then shift over to pop radio. And so, um, you know, and we'll talk about next week how Madonna actually attacked pop radio from R&B that in 82, 83, she was seen as an R&B artist, which is totally forgotten now. But true. Anyway, so, so Matos and his study of the marketing strategies and the way that these artists would use the different radio formats and plan, like, here's our single for this format. Here's our single for that format. And, you know, Quincy Jones and Michael had done it with Thriller and Lionel Richie's obviously doing it. But let's go ahead and hear All Night Long, All Night by Lionel Richie. This one made me verklempt when I heard it again. Everybody sing, everybody dance Lose yourself in wild romance We're going to party, caramel, fiesta, forever Come on and sing along We're going to party, caramel, fiesta, forever Come on and sing along And that was All Night Long, is All Night by Lionel Richie. And that, yeah, that's a song that uh, uh, brings back lots of memory of high school dances. And it made me verklempt because so many of the people I danced with in high school are no longer with us. And uh, wow. Yeah, it's just, you know, I feel like my high school class was just especially a bunch of screw ups. But then I was actually kind of comforted when I read about the deaths of despair among middle aged uh, white people in the last 10 years, you know, the, the, the diabetes epidemic, the, the fentanyl epidemic, the, you know, the oxy epidemic before that, um, you know, there's the COVID epidemic ravaged my high school class. So it's just, wow. I don't know, you know, it's, it's part of being in your mid fifties, but I'm pretty sure I've got more dead friends at my age than my boomer older siblings did when they were in their fifties. I I think Gen X just kind of on the chopping block. Yeah, Yeah. it makes a lot of sense. You've got the target on your back. You're the you're the it's just like every other um, demographic cohort. You know, if you're if you're heads up above the the foxhole at 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 that moment when the blow comes. Yeah. Yeah. And and we were primed for for deaths of despair in the in the 2010s for sure. A lot of a lot of people I knew um, from back home. Didn't make it through. Didn't make it through the 2010s. Didn't make it through their 40s. And so, Sorry you know, to hear that. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. Well, what are your final thoughts on on Eddie? I guess I guess, I mean on Lionel and, and the Olympics. Matos wraps it all up neatly and kind of gets a dig in here because he talks about Lionel Richie's storybook marriage all through the chapter and how his wife had had kept a very close eye on him and it had quotes from from other women, you know, going, "That's a smart sister," and so yeah. he asked her. Why? Well, I would have moved on him if she hadn't been right there. <laughs> but yeah, um, his he actually meets the young dancer who's going to become his second wife at the Olympics here, and his first wife Brenda's going to get uh, in trouble uh, when she catches them together and gets arrested for assault and battery. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so even the easiest mellowest uh, pop life uh, is going to have to pay the Orpheus tax, as they say. But, there you go. What you got some final thoughts to wrap up for us? Yeah, you know what? The you know, one another thing that made those Olympics jump out and and release stark relief was the fact that 1980 boy the 1980 boycott happened. I happen to know and happen to have written about some Olympians whose career, I mean, basically all it takes is one. And you're you you suddenly the thing you've been working for is is has vanished. And I actually had a uh, journalism uh, teacher, a visiting professor who was writing a book with Kurt Thomas um, in, in preparation. Gymnast, the, the gold medal gymnast. The gymnast. Yes, there's, you know, I'm sure there's. He's starring Jim Cotta, the martial oh, arts yes. gymnastic movie. Yes, yes. There's, there's human history is divided between BG and AG. That's before Jim Cotta and 
after Jim Cotta. I know anyway. as a combat sports journalist that Jim Cotta is still, the echoes of Jim Cotta are still felt in, in the Ultimate Fighting Championship week in, week out. Wow. Go ahead. Wow. You could have convinced me. My my teacher was going to write a book with him. He was going to be the Bruce Jenner of the 80 Olympics. I mean, he was going to do what the Olympic. He was going to help us break the the Soviet hold on gymnastics. Kurt Thomas was, and my my teacher, who became my mentor and friend, was a less Sports Illustrated to write this book about him. Wrote the book. It's a really good book. And then he's driving home one day, and here's it were. He was really interesting. He said he's he's parking his car at his apartment, and he hears that that we're boycotting the Olympics, and he doesn't do the math. That this is directly going to affect the, you know, exactly what he's been working on. Yes. I mean, it's so painful. I knew an Olympian who got on the team. He was one of the best sprinters of the the first half of the 80s, end of the um, 70s. Um, One of the 10, one of the six fastest people on earth in 1980. Um, who was on the Olympic team and then doesn't go. And I mean, it broke his, he was, he was the opposite of Carl Lewis. He was a great guy, really sweet, <laughs> soft-spoken, decent. I mean, just one of those guys spoiled me for every other athlete I ever dealt with and um, ruined it. I knew I met an equestrian um, competitor, who, you know, a horse guy. And um, that's, I don't know where the money comes from. I mean, you know, for that, but you There's spent always money guys, in equestrian sports. Yes. And they spent, they have spent, you know, that horse is not going to be ready four years from now. It's ready right now. Yeah. And, and Carter, and Carter took the hit for all this. They yep. blame Carter. Those, well, those he's the one who decided to boycott the Olympics. I mean, you know, I know, he, I know. He's the one who boycotted the Olympics. And then for Reagan, the Russians boycott the Olympics in revenge. And therefore, the, the American athletes get to rack up easy win after easy win. Yes. And it's very much the Olympic Games were like one long performance of Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American. I mean, or it was the, an orgy. It was an yeah. orgy. And I thought, of you know, I had this one. Young, Yes. And I had this. USA, I thought, USA. Well, yeah, I thought there's going to be an asterisk somewhere because the Soviets nope. weren't there because they were mad that we boycotted. No, yeah. it turned out that who gives a shit? Nobody cared. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's no asterisk. There's no asterisk on Mary Lou Retton some Wheaties box. <laughs> no, no. Yep. She because I mean, so, so many pop culture stars uh, came out of that. Kurt Thomas even got yes. a bit of that. You know, he did. He, he, he was did. still in shape enough to win the gold medal. And he didn't have to compete with the Soviet gymnasts or any of the East Germans or the Czechs. You know, the whole block, uh, Eastern Bloc, which we don't remember anymore. But, you know, they had a whole group of satellite yes, countries that also boycotted. And so, yep. you know, America just walked in, uh, you we know, did. to the gold medal uh, event after event after event. And and I, it's pretty genius to me of, of Matos to link Lionel Richie's reign of musical terror. And again, I'm kidding about that. I've made peace with Lionel. Much respect to Lionel's craftsmanship and sure. artistry. Sure. But at the time, as a 15 year old, I just hated yeah. him. And, uh, and, 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 and nobody now can understand what it was like. You had to hear Lionel Richie, whether you wanted to or not. And you had to hear him exactly. all the time. All, all night long, so to speak. Sorry to be a punster. Indeed. Indeed. No, no, no need to, 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 to hold back. But anyway, that, that wraps up for Ed Leg. I'm Nate Wilcox. That wraps up this episode of 80s Roll. And next week we'll be back. We'll be talking about the MTV Music Awards, the very first one. Lots of Madonna talk, lots of Tina Turner talk. Yeah. So it should be a good one. So thanks, Ed, for uh, continuing yep. with, with me on this journey as we 80s roll it on down. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes John Higgs to discuss his new book, Love and Let Die, about the Beatles and James Bond. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.